Back to the fifth chapter of Romans we go this morning, and I invite you to turn your attention with me to that chapter. Romans chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 9 through 11. We have for the past few weeks been making our way through these fruits of justification, if you will, the results of our having been made right with God through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, who is himself God, God the Son, that is. We have peace with God, we saw. We have access into his grace. We have hope and confidence even through, even in our sufferings. And now Paul clinches it all, sums up what he's been saying for several verses now, and adds this note of certainty upon certainty of our salvation yesterday and today and forever. Verse 9 we go then, but not until we first go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, teach us, we pray, and fill us with thy word. May thy spirit who inspired the apostle Paul's writing of these words, may he, the same spirit, who was with him there that day, be with us here this day. And, Father, build our hearts more and more upon the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Some weeks ago, when I was preaching to you from the third chapter of this book, I reminded you that the Bible has three great metaphors for our salvation. The ones we heard back in chapter three from Paul, you might remember, were justification and redemption. There Paul marvelously brought together both ideas that God in the course of saving us justifies us. That is, declares, proclaims us righteous for the righteousness of Christ that is placed on our account. And the idea that we are redeemed. That is, that we are purchased, that we're bought at the cost of the blood of Christ. Now... Here in chapter 5, he brings together the great metaphor of justification again, only this time pairs it with another mighty word picture that we are reconciled to God. Or more accurately, that God has reconciled us to himself. Now you all have at least some idea in your mind of what is meant by that word, Reconciliation. You know that it is something that takes place in a relationship, particularly a relationship that has been broken, damaged, 
something comes between two parties, an argument perhaps. One or both parties make their contributions to the quarrel between them, and the next thing you know, they're no longer even talking to each other. It happens every day. And the opposite happens as well. Parties who were once divided from one another have the relationship restored between them, and they become friends again. They are, as we say, reconciled to one another, or sometimes we say their differences are reconciled. But usually, something has to happen in order for the relationship to be reconciled. More often than not, some sort of transaction has to take place, some sort of exchange of one sort or another. One party asks forgiveness of the other, for example, and the other grants that forgiveness, and the two are brought together again. They are reconciled. It's always a happy thing to see that especially to see that in the house, in the family of God, in the church. Now, such reconciliation between one human being and and another is but a faint reflection of an outgrowth of an even greater reconciliation. Capital R. Reconciliation, you might say, the reconciliation of the relationship between God and man. But there are some similarities. For one, in order to have reconciliation, you must have first had a relationship at some time. You do not need to be reconciled, after all, with someone you've never, with whom you've never had a relationship. There's no need for reconciliation because there's no relationship to begin with. And therefore, there's no falling out, so to speak, and no reason for bringing the two parties back together again. They weren't together in the first place. But where two parties walked together at one time in harmony with each other, in agreement... And then had a parting of of the ways. Their reconciliation is needed if the two will ever come back together again. Well, in no relationship has there ever been a greater need for reconciliation than in the relationship between God and man. And you'll not be surprised to find out that there was indeed, at one time, a happy relationship between us. In our father Adam, there was a happy relationship between ourselves and God. It was marked by fellowship. Remember walking in the garden together, in conversation, and openness, and fellowship, and honesty? What happened? All in one horrible day, it was lost. The day that our father Adam in our stead put the forbidden fruit to his lips. And that day the relationship was damaged. It was broken. 
what was once a friendship and companionship of the highest, most wonderful, noblest order was broken. Another similarity between the reconciliation that must often take place between two human beings who have been divided from one another and the reconciliation that must take place between us and God is the fact that for such a reconciliation to take place, a transaction of some sort is required. Someone has to do something to affect reconciliation. Even if it's as simple as saying the first word to the other. Usually, though, it's something more than that. Some, someone needs to affect reconciliation by engaging in the transaction. The transaction, we might call it, of forgiveness. Where one or both parties ask forgiveness of the other which means that one or both of the parties agree then to suffer the consequence of the other's sin against them, to bear those consequences without complaint and without holding against that first party the sin that they committed against them. So it is, brothers and sisters, in our relationship to God. There were only two parties in all the universe. There were only two parties, God and man, God and us, we might say. Someone had to affect reconciliation. And since we died the day sin entered the world and became helpless spiritual corpses, for that is what the scripture says we were, the choices narrowed quickly to one. It had to be God or no one. Now here's the wonderful thing. God took the initiative. God took it on himself to affect reconciliation between us. But what he had to do to accomplish that reconciliation is the truly astounding thing. He, knowing that we could do nothing, that the only thing we had to offer to the transaction to bring to the table was the very sin that broke the relationship to begin with and nothing more. I say he took upon himself to initiate and to accomplish reconciliation. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God the Father, in order to affect reconciliation between us sacrificed his own son God the son that is who willingly sacrificed himself 
to restore the relationship that we, not he, had broken. Willingly, he, the offended party, took him on himself the consequence of the broken relationship, in this case, his own wrath, in order for the relationship between us to be restored. Here we see one huge difference between relationships that exist man to man and the relationship between human beings and and God. We considered some of the similarities a moment ago. Here is one difference, one major difference. It is one thing for one human being to be offended by another. That's simply one sinner sinning against another sinner. But when we sin against God, we sin against our Creator. We sin against our very Maker, who is Himself perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. Get the picture in your mind and fix it there. It was measly sinners rising up against the one who had given his just and perfect commandments, who must be obeyed perfectly and completely without fail. And that at the cost of consequences dictated and applied by perfect, infinite justice. Of God. So when it came time for someone to suffer the consequences for the sin that broke this relationship, it was no small matter at all. The infinite justice, the terrible wrath of God against sinners who had broken his law. It required in some death. And that not only death in the sense of falling asleep, oh no. Death in the sense of eternal torment, eternal banishment from the favor of God for the wrath of God forever, for the rest of eternity. This, Christians, and nothing less was required of God the Son in order to reconcile you to God. It was, verse 9, his blood. Verse 10, his death. This is what he suffered upon the cross for you, what pressed from his bloodied and swollen lips with hitching gasps those tortured words that expressed the inexpressible. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That, dear Christians, and nothing less was required for reconciliation between yourself and God. 
Now take careful note with me this morning of three important things that Paul does with this doctrine of reconciliation. First, notice that Paul reasons with you from the doctrine of reconciliation. That is to say, Paul argues from this one thing to another. In this case, from the reconciliation that you have gained by the blood of Christ to something else. Among the sayings that have come down to us from Rabbi Hillel, a very important Jewish leader of the early first century, probably an early contemporary of Paul, there are some principles of biblical interpretation that are used here by Paul. One of them is called Cal Vakomer, from the Hebrew words for light and heavy. It refers to a form of argumentation in which one reasons that if one thing is true, a lighter thing, a lesser thing, then based upon that, this other thing, this heavier thing, this greater thing is also true. You might remember that Jesus used this very sort of technique back in Matthew 7. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Of course, the lighter thing was evil people giving good gifts to their children. The heavy thing, the greater thing, the the perfect God of heaven giving good gifts to his children. It is, as you young rhetoricians are learning, it is to argue from the lesser to the greater. Or as you... Logicians might call it, on the other hand, this is a priori or deductive reasoning. Well, here we might say that Paul uses the same form of argument, only he switches it around and uses it just backwards. He argues not from the lesser to the greater, but from the greater to the lesser. Look at it now. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And in fact, he uses the very same technique again back in verse 9. Look look there with me. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, in a certain sense, Paul has just said the same thing twice. His point, quite simply, is this. If God has done all of this for you, if he has accomplished all of this by his death and by his blood, if he has reconciled and justified us in those ways, and that when we were his enemies, then the future is sure We who are now his friends, who have been reconciled to him, shall surely be saved. We shall surely be spared from the wrath to come. You see how he's arguing? If we have been reconciled by his death, we will be all the more saved by his life. When you hear... 
Paul say that? You might be tempted to think of Jesus' life while on the earth, but that's not the life that Paul is talking about. It is Jesus' resurrection life, his life after death, his life now exalted on high in heaven. That's what he's talking about. The argument you see is based on Christ's death then and his life now. The contrast is also, of course, between our status. When God reconciled us to himself, what what were we? His enemies. Now reconciled, we are his friends. It goes like this. If he was willing to pay the infinite price to reconcile himself to you in the past, Christians, when you were his enemies, then he will most certainly see the work finished, accomplished, done, and you saved from the wrath of God and safely in heaven. Of course he will. Having done so much for you already, he will most certainly do the rest. Now you, Christian, argue that same point with your own doubting souls. God has done so much. He has reconciled you, an enemy of his, to himself. And that at no small cost to himself. In fact, at infinite cost. Do you think, really, you argue with your own soul now. Do you really think that having done all that, he won't finish it? He won't complete the task? Oh, no, he is sure to do it. As Paul writes in another one of his letters, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. future of your salvation, Christian, is sure and certain altogether. The wrath of God we know will fall upon so many, and it causes us to weep the thought of it on that last day and forevermore. You will never know. You will never taste. Not one drop For Christ on the cross has drunk that cup of God's wrath against you to its dregs. And it is finished. It is done. Don't you love the way, the Spirit-inspired way Paul reasons with you from your reconciliation with God right into the gates of heaven. There may be someone in the hearing of my voice right now who wonders how he or she could possibly enjoy something so great and marvelous as what is enjoyed by you. The certain knowledge that their place will be forever in heaven and not in hell. You're wondering what you must do. This may be the first thing you need to hear 
right now. And second, reconciliation is something that is received. Salvation is something that is received. That is to say, reconciliation with God is not something that you do. It is something you receive. It is not something you achieve. It is not something you affect. It is not something you bring about in any way. Notice, well, the way Paul writes about it in these verses. Listen to the voice of his verbs. We have been justified. We shall be justified. We were reconciled to God and so on. All of these things are things that happen to us. Not things that are accomplished by us. And then to seal it all, to seal his case, he says in verse 11, that we have received reconciliation. Now, why do I labor the point? For this simple reason. It is the bent of our hearts by nature to say that if something is going to happen, we have got to make it happen. We have got to do it. It's ingrained in our nature. It's fed by the American psyche. I will do for myself. Thank you very much. Self-reliance. That's what we're all about. Even when we go and buy a book, we call it a self-help book. But this wonderful gift of reconciliation with God can only come to you that way. As a gift. You can only receive this. You cannot achieve this. It is not something you take. It is something you are given. By the grace of God. All you can do is receive it as with an empty hand. And then you. Here you have who have already been reconciled to God, do not think for one moment that you can make yourself more reconcilable. Do not think that you can now produce enough prayers and do enough good works. Don't try. Don't even try to be worthy of the reconciliation that you have been given by God. For as one commentator puts it, offers to pay by an utter bankrupt are only wor- not only worthless, but an insult to grace. We must never, ever seek To repay God for his grace and for reconciling us to himself and restoring this relationship between us. Don't even try. But that doesn't mean that we must not, third, let God's reconciliation set us to rejoicing. Verse 11, more than that, 
We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now be careful here. We rejoice in our reconciliation to be sure. But it is not primarily in our resurrection, nor in our reconciliation, nor even for our reconciliation that we rejoice. It is in our God that we rejoice in him who has done this, who has reconciled us. Yes, there is such a thing as the joy of your salvation. And may God grant it to us more and more. But the very point of our rejoicing, the very joy of our salvation is that delight that we find not in the salvation itself, but in the Savior who has given it to us. We rejoice in God. When two lovers are reconciled again after a spat, when two longtime friends are brought back together again after a bitter falling out, their delight is not so much in the reconciliation as it is in the other party with whom they are reconciled. Dear flock, we have been reconciled to God. Now let us glory in him. Let us make him our chief delight day after day, the one from whom we had been estranged, whose enemies we had become on account of our sin. Now let our hearts thrill and rejoice in him, in knowing him more and more as the days go by. I'm reminded of the opening words of a chapter from J.I. Packer's classic work entitled Knowing God. Now, if you do not have a copy of that book, you need to go first thing tomorrow morning and secure one for yourself and then read it cover to cover. You will not be the same again when you're finished. Anyway, Packer opens the second chapter of that book with this. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, it doesn't matter For I've known God, and they haven't. Can you say the same? Are you ready to forfeit all and say, It doesn't matter, for I've known God. I pray that you are, every one of you. I pray that your delight is in the Lord and that reconciled to him, you like the psalmist say from your heart, whom have I in heaven but you and earth holds nothing that I desire. Besides you, alas, We must admit it. 
every one of us, we do not rejoice nearly enough in the Lord. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that skilled physician of the soul, gives us a number of reasons for that, which I now lay before you for your consideration. Here are some of the reasons that we fail to rejoice in God. Number one, he supplies, is a failure, a failure to grasp the truth of justification by faith only. Number two, a failure to meditate as we ought. That is, a failure to think about what we do know. And third, a failure to draw necessary conclusions from the scriptures. Maybe your failure for rejoicing in God, if indeed you have failed to do so, is something else is based on something else. I don't know what is in your hearts. But you do, at least to some extent you do. Whatever it is, whatever it is that has edged out of your heart rejoicing in God, I call upon you in God's name to put it out, to edge it out, which is accomplished in the small house of your heart when it is filled more and more with thoughts of the goodness and the faithfulness and the kindness and the love of him who at the cost of his very life under the terrible wrath of God reconciled you to himself. Think on him. All day long, you think on him until it may be said of you and by you, I rejoice in God. I rejoice in God. I rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom I have received reconciliation. Amen.